Kia from your Every Nation Southside family here in Papatoitoi, Auckland. You are now listening to a podcast from our church service and we pray that you will be blessed by it. For more information, please visit our Facebook page or feel free to contact our church office. So this new series that we're talking about today, that we're kicking off today, is called Empower. And it's based on one of our core values here at Every Nation. And, you know, we, we have five core values here in Every Nation, Southside. And, you know, core values, you know, everyone has values. Everyone has core values, whether you know it or not. You know, when I was growing up, I, when I think of my family, um, my whole life, my parents always drummed into me, you know, when you have faith in God and you grow up, you have an education, then you get married, have a family, and you buy a house. So to me, those, that was what they always said all the time. Faith, family, education. A lot of the time that involved music. And buy a house. Those were drummed into me. And I grew up thinking, okay, those are the important things. You know, but now that I'm an adult, I have other friends who have grown up with different values, you know, from their parents. Like, for instance, one of my closest friends, she has no interest whatsoever in buying a house because growing up, her parents raised her with, you know, you've got to travel the world, you've got to experience this, you've got to see what's happening out there. And so when she grew up, even now, we're around the same age, she says to me things like, man, I don't know how you'd want to buy a house, you know, like that's such a, such a drain of your finances when I would love to, you know, do this and do that. And I can totally see that there is value in that. And, and what I'm trying to say is that everyone has different values. Uh, sometimes they are good values, fruitful values. Sometimes they can be uh, less beneficial values. Um, but here at Every Nation, if you have done our Every Nation members uh, class, you know, and I'm looking around, I see some pretty old members who've been in the church for a long time. You would have learned it back then, but you throughout the years would have had it drummed into you year after year after year. Um, and I'm just going to run through them for us. Uh, that's right, I have this. So we have five core values. We call them the pillars of our building, so to speak. And so the first one is lordship. Jesus is Lord, what he says goes. Amen. Um, evangelism, God has a heart for the lost. He cares about them. And so we're passionate about preaching the gospel, reaching the lost, reaching our families, and praying for people who don't know him every day, who don't know Christ. Discipleship. You know, we, are, we take the Great Commission very seriously, what Jesus said. Go and make disciples. We believe in um, establishing biblical foundations, equipping all the believers to minister, and empowering the disciples to make disciples. Leadership. That's the one that we'll be fo focusing on today. We believe in training up the next generation so that we have a movement that doesn't stop after we've gone and of course, family. We believe in community, marriages, raising godly children, raising our families, spiritual family, 
church family. Those are our five values. Anywhere around the world, you go to any Every Nation church, you'll see some shape or form of these values. And basically what it means is that everything that we do is always centered around one or more of these values. We will spend all of our money on these values. That's just how we roll. This is our bread and butter. We will invest everything. We'll fight to keep these in the center of what we do. And that's what values are, you know? Like my kids the other day, they were saying, man, mom, how come um, so-and-so, they've got the latest iPads. Have you guys seen those new iPads? They're like the size of a car or something, you know? And they were telling me that their cousin just got the latest iPad and it is huge. And they were saying, man, are they rich or something? And then I was thinking, I think they're just normal. They just chose to invest in that direction, you know. We invest in, you know, a lot of our money personally goes into um, paying for our house because, like I said, that's one of our values that I was raised with, you know. Um, I know a lot of you guys spend a lot of your money on, on, on a house or on paying for the place that you live, and that's because it's something that you value. You're willing to pay a price um, for that. And all of us have different ways that we see values and different ways that we choose to allocate our money depending on what we value. And so this Empower series in particular is looking at this leadership core value. And we're taking inspiration from a book by Pastor Steve Murrell, which many of you have probably read, called The Multiplication Challenge. And he wrote this with his son, William Murrell. Actually, it was Pastor Steve who was the last person to finally convince Ulu that he needed to go to Wheaton um, to get this training. And so this multiplication challenge book is all about leadership. And so week one, we're starting today on how to think like a leader. And so I want to ask this question. How do you know if you're a leader? There's this funny quote that we've we've heard for the you know over the years. It's a Malawian proverb, and it says, "He who thinks he is leading, and has no one following him, is only taking a walk." Now, Mark nine. Let's look at Jesus' example. Verses thirty to thirty-four. I'll read it to you. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Imagine that, eh? you know, arguing about something that seems so, like, petty or so, you know, vain. And then Jesus is asking you, what were you guys arguing about? I imagine that the disciples thought that, oh, shame, caught. 
because it kind of seems like a selfish thing to be arguing about who's the greatest. And so I wanted to ask us here, who in here wants to be great? Anybody? Oh, three people. Awesome. I think the rest of us are telling lies. <laughs> because we all want to be great, right? I mean, you don't go into the movies and you look at the list of movies that they're showing and you think, oh, I wonder what would be the most average movie for me to watch. I feel like watching, I feel like eating some average food. You know, when you go to a restaurant and you ask the waiter, what's the most average dish that you have? I don't want anything too yummy. No, no, don't. You know, you, you parents, you know, when you send your kids to school, you don't say to them, go child, go and do average. No, <laughs> I know Samoan parents don't say that, you know. You know, we want, we want to be great. We want our kids to be great. We want to have greatness in our lives. Deep down, we're actually wired to desire greatness. We're, desi we're, we're designed to want the best. And, you know, all this time, because I grew up reading this scripture, you know, like, oh, they were fighting over who was the greatest. Oh, shame, they got caught. I always thought, you know, Jesus must have told them off. Jesus must have told them, you know, no, no, that's naughty. Don't argue about that kind of thing. You know, aren't followers of Jesus supposed to be humble and put other people first? You know, that's just vain and selfish. You know, but look at Jesus' response. How did he respond? I mean, he asked, you know, a question. When Jesus asks a question, you know in the Bible, when Jesus or God asks a question, it's not because they want to know the answer. Because they already know the answer, right? Like in, in the Garden of Eden, when God said to Adam and Eve after they had sinned and disobeyed, God said, where are you? It's not because he was looking under the taro leaves, he couldn't find them. It was because he wanted them to know that he was looking for them and they had separated themselves. They had done it. He wanted them to know. And just like, you know, the disciples, they'd been arguing about who was the greatest. Jesus knew they had been arguing about who was the greatest, but he wanted them to say it. He wanted them to bring it up. So he said, what were you guys arguing about? So when he had brought to their attention what they had been arguing about, who was the greatest, verse 35, it says, sitting down, this is his response, Jesus called the, t the 12 and he said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. That was his response. He didn't tell them off for wanting to be great. It was like he was saying, okay, so you guys want to be great. Let me show you how. He actually wasn't surprised because he had put that desire in them himself, that desire to be great. And so he redirected their aim, so to speak. And he told them, okay, let's, le let's learn. I'm going to teach you the path to greatness. 
because to desire greatness is not an evil thing. It's great. But, you know, the, the idea of wanting greatness has been corrupted by the enemy. You know, he, he, the enemy, he can't, con he can't create new things. He has to take the beautiful and good and holy things of this world and twist them and, and pervert them and corrupt them in a way that we get to a point where we don't even recognize that it's actually supposed to be a blessing anymore. And so he's done the same thing to countless other things. And so I wanted to bring up two myths about greatness. There's a great quote there by Dr. Martin Luther King. Everybody can be great because everybody can serve. And that's what Jesus was saying. So myth number one about greatness, to be great is to be known. That's what the world says. You're only great if everyone knows you. And that kind of idea is really, really um, easy to foster in a world like this where there is um, social media everywhere, you know. I spend almost all day, every day with teenagers and everything is about how many followers you have, how many likes you get, you know, they want to take the same photo 35 times to choose the one where they look the skinniest or they look the prettiest and then post that one and then check it every five minutes to see how many people have liked it because you don't like it unless you press like. I learned, I learned so much from these teenagers. And that's how your greatness is judged. If people know you or if people appreciate you. You're great in this world because because of sin, deep down, you're finding validation. You're finding your value in what other people think of you. Myth number two, the world says to be great is to be better than everyone else. You know, a lot of religious people um, like measuring themselves against others, you know, and you hear, you hear people say things like, oh, well, you know, at least I'm not that bad. Or, oh, I'm, I'm better than that person, so sweet as. And then it becomes an issue of not just being great, but being greater than everyone else, which was what the disciples were arguing about. You know, Jesus desired for them, he willed for them to be great, but they had allowed the enemy to pervert it in their hearts to the point where they wanted to be greater than each other. But, you know, it's important for us to all remember that there will always be someone better than you at something. So that kind of quest to be the greatest or the best all the time, it's exhausting. And the enemy has managed to twist our desires to want to just receive greatness from people rather than from God. And so... The secret to greatness is to receive it from God, not from the world. Because we all want to be great, right? We all do want to be great, even though most of you, 95.99% of you didn't put your hand up. We all want to be great. But so many of us don't understand the pathway to greatness. 
We want to arrive at the destination, but we don't want to travel the road there. Mark 10, 35 to 37. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, mind you, this is one chapter after the last time when they were caught arguing over who was the greatest. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Wow, they're talking to Jesus. They're saying that. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. Verse 38, you do not know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together, again, called them together. And he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve and to give. You know, bringing it back to that first verse that we read, Je uh, James and John, they were two of Jesus' three most closest disciples. Often, you know, when Jesus would go with the crowds, then he would go with his disciples somewhere else and spend time with them. But then sometimes he would take James, John, and Peter, and he would spend time with them. So they were the three really close people to Jesus. So they were already, you know, um, had, had awesome privileges and secret um, and access, direct access to the Son of God. But they still came behind everyone else's back and said, you know, when you go into glory, we want to be one on the right, one on the left. I mean, first of all, their first thing that they said to him was, Jesus, we want you to do what, whatever we ask. You know, like, did, did anyone in here struggle with being told what to do? Again, with the no hands up. I know that I struggle with being told what to do. You know, sometimes when I'm in class and we're doing an activity or something, and I'll say, okay, let's split up into groups. You guys go over there, you guys go over there, you guys go over there. And there's always one person who says, oh, miss, 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 no, 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 you should put me in that group because then blah, 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 you know, and then something inside me just, you know, rises and I, excuse me? Oh, sorry, did I make a mistake and come into your class where you're the boss? No. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, miss, sorry. You know, and so, you know, just a little tiny bit of a struggle of when people try to tell me what to do. But you know, Jesus is just a great example of humility, 
He didn't even say, do you know who you're talking to? They said, Jesus, we want you to do what we say. And Jesus, the creator of the universe, the son of God, seated at the right hand of the father, says, what would you like me to do for you? Well, he's just amazing. He, he knows who he is. He doesn't have to prove it to anybody. He knows that he's the boss. But they were already closer than everybody else. You know, and I was just thinking, I was trying to have a visual of what they were asking for. So when Jesus is in glory, you know, there's God, the Father, seated on his throne, and then Jesus seated at his right hand. And so they're asking for one to go on that side and one to go on that side. You know, the, the right hand of God throughout the Bible, it represents the highest place of honor because his right hand actually represents his power, his authority, his strength as the almighty God. And so to be seated at God's right hand, that is probably in the universe's universes. That is the highest place that you could sit. Not only did they want to share that place with Jesus, I was just thinking, if one of them's on Jesus' left side, then now he's in the middle of God and Jesus, like squished in there. The audacity. But you know what? Jesus told them, no. Sometimes Jesus says no to us. Has Jesus ever said no to any of you guys? He has definitely said no to me many times. Like that time when I was 18, 19 maybe. And I felt like, you know, the Lord needed to buy me a car. And Mobile Station back then, it's still called Mobile now, eh? Mobile Station had this competition where, I don't know, you have to spend money at their um, shop, uh, at their petrol station and then every time you spend however many dollars, you go into the draw to win this. And it was a beautiful, huge, blue um, four-wheel drive. And I just thought, I feel like I'm the daughter of the Most High. You know, I feel like, yes, I have faith. And so I prayed and prayed and prayed. And I asked God for this car and I believed in faith. And, you know, didn't have my license or anything. But you know what? Jesus said no to me. Did not win the car. I was still riding my bike to uni every day. Still didn't get muscly legs either. But you know, Jesus said no to me. And he said no to James and John as well. Sometimes, you know, when we have no business asking for what we're asking for because we think we know more than we actually know, sometimes Jesus says no. And he said to them, no, because you have got greatness all wrong. You have got leadership totally wrong. He even said, that's how the Gentiles view greatness. That's how they view leadership, in that it's all about position. It's all about titles. It's all about honor and authority. In other words, that's how the people who don't know me do greatness. That's how they do leadership. But this is how we do it in my kingdom. Not so with you, Jesus said. In my kingdom, leadership and greatness, 
work differently. In my kingdom, Jesus said, if you want to be great, you have to be the servant of all. Not just be a servant of nice people who say thank you and God bless you all the time. Remember the chapter that I read before? Jesus brought a young child and he was holding him and he said, this is the kind of person that I want you to serve. And you know, all the parents in here and all the, I think all of you guys are aunties and uncles and have experience with babies and young children. You know, probably you have forgotten, but you have probably saved the life of so many children, probably those of you who are parents and even grandparents, you have probably saved your grandchildren's and your children's lives more times than you can count and or even remember. You know, remember all those times where they tried to run on the road and you said, get back over here. Or, you know, the times when they tried to go and lie under the car and you said, no, don't do that. And then they got mad at you because you were holding them back, holding them back from their, you know, free creativity. No, no, I want to jump in the pool even though I don't know how to swim. No, you are not going to jump in the pool because you don't know how to swim. So many times you have saved the life, those lives. Did you ever get a thank you? No. <laughs> Probably you were met with, you're not fair, you're holding me back. Ah, I want to touch it, I want to play over there. You know, that's probably what we do to God sometimes too. You know, where God is, ah, 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 come over here, not over there, not that relationship. No, don't go and do that. That's not good for you. And we get mad. But God has probably saved our life so many times. But you know, when you serve, Jesus was saying, you must be willing to serve people like this, like this young child who need a lot of saving often and will never say thank you because they don't even know they don't really fully understand what you've done leadership is not about power biblical godly leadership it's not about position or authority or recognition but it's about being a servant to all biblical christ-like leadership is service you know, so many people think, you know, if you just keep serving, just be faithful, then one day you'll be great. One day you'll be able to lead. That's not, that's not the way that, that Jesus puts it. You know, because Jesus was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was already great. He didn't have to serve his way to greatness. He was already the greatest that you can get, but he was serving 24-7, healing people, washing people's feet, you know, getting down and dirty with those people that all of the other people didn't want to, you know, give the time of day to. It's his example that we should follow. We don't serve, serve, serve so that one day we can be great. Serving is not a stepping stone towards leadership. Leadership is a great way to be able to serve at a greater capacity. Leadership is not the goal. Serving is the goal. And to be honest, you never outgrow serving. Jesus never outgrew it. He never outgrew serving. Even when he was hanging on the cross, he served the man next to him and told him how he can be saved. He was kind of busy. 
saving the world. And so I wanted to say to us as a church family, you know, if serving is beneath you, then leadership will always be beyond you. I was thinking about just um, quite a few years back when we were staying in the Philippines, um, we had made friends with a young senior pastor and his wife, and they were, um, they had planted a church in one of the provinces, which is about 90 minutes to two hours outside of Manila called um, Bulacan, and um, they had planted two churches up there, or down there, and Back in on, during that time, they had asked Ulu if he could come and preach at their churches. So they had um, one church in the morning and then one church around lunchtime. And so, you know, we said yes. And then on the Sunday morning, uh, this senior pastor had sent one of his pastoral team to come and pick us up. And so because it was so far away from where we were staying, uh, we were standing outside our apartment at 6 a.m., waiting for this pastor to come. And so he came, picked us up, and we had a really awesome drive with him, you know, um, such a awesome guy to talk to, telling us about his, you know, journey, going, going into ministry. You know, anyone in every nation who is full-time ministry, they've always got a huge story to tell, heaps of encouragements, because, you know, you need a miracle to get, you know, to a place where you're able to, you know, just serve full-time. And so he was telling us his story and we were so encouraged. And then when we got to the place where they were holding church, uh, he took us to a side room, which was kind of like a office space. And they had breakfast all set out for us. And me and Ulu and the boys were like, whoa, is there anyone else coming who's like important? Because, you know, we don't really, we don't even have breakfast ourselves. But, you know, they had set out this whole breakfast for us. And so we were like, just picking away at it, but then he said, oh, I, I need to go, but I'll um, come and check on you uh, soon, and so we were just picking on it, on the food, and then we wondered where he had gone, so we went out into the main auditorium of where the church was going to be, and that pastor who had picked us up, along with the senior pastor and his wife and all of their wives and a whole bunch of other people, they were setting up all the chairs, and, you know, the wives were, like, making cups of tea for all the people who were coming early, you know. And I was really blessed um, to see leadership serving their church, you know. And, and then I thought, that's why everyone is here serving. Because they had not, not they, it's not that they were serving because they didn't have anyone else to set up the chairs. There was a whole bunch of them setting up the chairs. But these guys were right there amongst them. And so every time we go there, to this church, it has grown. Um, I think the last time Ulu went up there to preach, um, they had maybe four services each on each location, and they had all over doubled in size, but even though they had so many more people, sure enough, every single time, those pastors are always leading with the people, all sitting up together, and I was just thinking, that is why the server the servant, servanthood culture is so strong here. And, you know, of course, I always think of Southside. And, you know, I think of Southside, and it's just the same here. You know, we have so many people who love to serve, you know. And I was just thinking, you know, there's people that stand at the door and welcome us in so that you, you don't just have to walk in and find your seat. 
You've got a whole bunch of really good-looking, smiley people welcoming you when you come in. And, you know, most of the time, the floor's been swept before we arrive. Most of the time, you know, there's something yummy baking in the ovens. Not because people are wanting to be recognized, because most of the time, you know, we don't really say thank you. I mean, I know, personally, I don't say thank you to the children's church teachers every week that they teach my children. And I don't know if, if you guys think to do that either. You know, I don't thank the youth leaders every Sunday for putting up with our wonderful, awesome teenagers. You know, and m probably most of the time when you guys serve, you don't get thanked either. I know you don't get paid. But, you know, it's just that heart, that heart of a servant where you say, I'm going to serve. I'm going to wake up early, turn up to church, you know, sweep the floor, set out the beautiful um, welcome table, put out the lollies that the kids always steal and the visitors don't even get any. Sorry about that, Thomas. You know, even though I may have had a hard week at work or even though maybe there's stuff going on in my family, I'm going to go and I want to serve because I want to be like Jesus. You know, it shall not be that way with you, Jesus said. Stop thinking like Gentiles. Stop thinking like people who don't know me. Think like a servant. Leadership is not the goal. Greatness is not the goal. Servanthood is the goal. Uh, so as we close, you know, before, um, before in the early days um, after Jesus had uh, ascended, the followers of Jesus were not called Christians. They were actually called the way. That sounds pretty, like, eerie-fairy, eh? Um, before they got that flash title of, you know, the followers of Christ or the Christians, it was followers of Jesus were called the way. And so in the book of Acts, when the early church, the early Christians were being persecuted and imprisoned and even put to death, it wasn't Christians that were being persecuted. It was the way. That's a pretty cool name. They were called the way because they knew the way. Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth and the life. They knew the way. They had met him. And they were walking with him in the way. You know, on, on Thursday, we had been waiting for Ulul's visa to come through. And it was like so crazy. We were, you know, Wheaton, the university, had given him until Friday morning to get there or else he would have failed that first paper and so we were just like lord please please give us that visa in time give us that visa in time so thursday morning 9 45 a.m we get the visa in our hands and i had been in contact with um, the travel agent trying to get him on the first flight in case we got that visa and so she said you need to be at the airport at 10 30 and so from 9 45 a.m we had some things we had to just quickly pick up from the mall, and then we were trying to get to the airport as quickly as we could. We got there a little bit late, and in the 
area that he was supposed to go and check in, it was an area because, you know, he doesn't fly to the States that often. We didn't really know where to go. Uh, he went to the machine. He had his thing printed out from the agent. And he was trying to figure out. We weren't, I wasn't allowed to um, go and help him because there were all of these workers with their badges saying, no, you cannot enter. You're not flying. So the kids and I were standing at the velvet rope. And we, I was just watching him and, you know, like I told you, he did not grow up reading books. He is the first one to tell you, you know, if there's no pictures on the thing, man, you need to read this thing to me because I don't get it. And um, he was trying to figure out how to put his stuff into this machine. And as I looked around, I noticed that there were a lot of really confused people who were in the same boat as him. And he's like, you know, educated and knows how to read. But there were people that I could see did not speak English. There was one lady, she had two young children and they looked like they were maybe six or seven. And she was so confused. And I heard her say, I could tell by her body language that she was telling her kids to go and get someone to come and help. And so her two little kids, they were so cute. They just split off. One went up to one worker with the badge and the other one went to the other worker with a badge. And they were trying to get their attention but they were busy doing their own thing in their own world. And I was trying to, you know, I felt sorry for these, this poor lady and her young children and they were trying their best and she looked so confused. Everyone looked so confused. And you know what I started thinking about us as Christians, you know, if you're in here today and you call yourself a Christian, you are saying that you are part of the way. You know the way. And what that means to this world is that even though they are lost and desperate for help and confused, by calling yourself a Christian, you are saying that you know the way. And you know what? We need to be willing to serve them. We need to be willing to show them the way. We can't be just stuck in our own worlds, busy doing our own thing, being too, you know, proud to be told what to do or, you know, to put other people's needs on top of our own. We know the way. We must serve those who don't. Thinking about Jesus, he became last. He chose to go last. He chose to allow himself to be despised in the eyes of the world. He became a servant of all. A servant of all, including those who didn't say thank you, including those who didn't like him or even respect him. He did this to give his life so that you and I could be esteemed and highly favored in the eyes of God so that we could have relationship with him and receive the greatness that only comes from God, God's greatness. So let's all think like leaders and view greatness and leadership the way that Jesus views it, through the eyes of a servant. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we just thank you so much for this.